Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Emmanuel Stokes in Christchurch, New Zealand, and today I am talking to Lee McIntyre, the author of On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy, published by MIT Press. Lee McIntyre is an author and research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. And he joins us now. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. Um, I wonder if we could, um, before we begin discussing the book, ask you a little bit about your background, where you were born, where you went to school, and to some degree, how you became interested in disinformation and truth denial. I was born in Portland, Oregon, and I went to the local public schools, which were not good, until I went to high school. Um, and it was in high school at a, a private school, you know, across town where all the rich kids went, and I was certainly not a rich guy, um, that I began to realize just how far behind I was and just started to read and read and read just, you know, everything I could get. And somewhere along the way formed the idea that it was academics who had the time to read and to think and to you know, think about the world's problems. Then once I became one of them, I figured out that's not what they spend most of their time actually doing. But, you know, that that idea, that vision of, you know, thinking about ideas and, you know, debating them with other people was very important to me. And then disinformation just came from the violation that that is to that ethic that I held. I mean, I always admired science. I admired philosophy. And then here come these folks who are using not only bad arguments, but doing them in bad faith. That is, they know they're bad arguments, and they're using them for the worst possible purpose, which is to try to dupe people into doing something for their benefit. So, I mean, my whole life when I was a kid, I because I didn't go to very good public schools, I, I read the encyclopedia. My dad said everything's in the encyclopedia, so I read the encyclopedia. And I was scandalized by all of these people who resisted, you know, Semmelweis and the Renaissance, and, you know, all, Socrates and all this stuff, and just kept feeling, you know, even as a kid, oh, I was born too late. You know, all the people who stood up for truth, they've already done it. And here I am living in the era when all truth has been discovered. But my moment came, didn't it? Uh, because here we are in, I think what will be remembered is, maybe not the information age, but the disinformation age. And I'm uh, pulling on my oar along with, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other people to try to to fight this. So that's, that's what I, that's where I came from and why I'm so passionate about what I do. I have a bit of an unusual question, but it is an interesting one. Um, did you have a mentor? Was there somebody that you personally connected with who sort of guided you along this path in, in some way? I didn't really until I got to high school and then again in college, but I'm going to say my mentor, just the, the one that got me on the path was my mom. My mom never went to college, but she was a very intelligent person who knew how to ask a question and she knew how to talk to a kid so that the answer was not, you know, because I said so, or something like that. She took me seriously, even when I was a child and would say, well, why do you think that's true? Or what do you think the answer is? And so I would ask her things like, what are the, what are the stars? And she said, well, they're, they're suns, but they're just very far away. So I'd say, well, does that mean that they have planets? Now, this was the late 1960s, maybe. And they hadn't discovered exoplanets. And she said, um, they haven't discovered any, but I bet they do. And I said, how many? And she said, probably all of them. Last year, I was standing at the foot of Giordano Bruno's statue in the Campo di Fiori. 
he he was executed for you know for what my my mom believed but i mean she had a way of helping me to imagine all the great ideas and, and you know to, that you could understand things by thinking about it and i think that's what a mentor really does that is uh, that is that's a wonderful wonderful uh, account thank you um <laughs> Before we move on to the book, can we just uh, ask you quickly about the other books that you've worked on, which um, yeah. I can see are on a similar theme, in fact. Yeah, I, I can't get off this theme um, because every time I write a book, things get worse. Uh, I wrote an er my, one of my earliest books was called Dark Ages, which was based on the idea that um, we're currently living in the dark ages of social science. I wanted social science to be more like natural science. But then people started to attack natural science, and I thought, okay, I'll write another book. And that one was called Respecting Truth, where I was standing up against the people who were fighting against evolution uh, and, you know, things like this. Uh, I mean, the, the very earliest uh, science, modern science deniers. And then things continued to get worse. And next thing you know, we had Donald Trump. And then I wrote a book called Post-Truth. Um, and after that, I just didn't quit. Uh, Post-truth, the scientific attitude, how to talk to a science denier, and then on disinformation. So I'm kind of on a theme. And to tell you the truth, I don't know what to do next, because either I was right from the beginning, and it's going to be the dark ages, and the lights are going to go out, <laughs> or we're going to be okay, and I have to find something new to write on. But that's what I want to do. You know, that's uh, I always wanted to be a writer. I didn't really know what I was going to write about, but I enjoy fiction. I enjoy poetry. I enjoy other, you know, creative, other creative things. And I, I guess I've always felt like if I could just get these issues settled, then I'd have time to do some music or something else. But the issues never get settled. So um, on disinformation is a short, really urgent uh, political almost sort of a book it's got footnotes in it but it is my manifesto to say you know we need to do something about this problem and uh you know i joke with my wife that i'll i'll either have succeeded or i'll end up in jail you know depending on what happens in the 2024 election maybe i'll end up in Christchurch because it's a wonderful place uh and uh you know that wouldn't be you bad you would be most welcome. I, I can I can assure you. <laughs> uh, one of the things I noticed about your book, like you said, it's it's quite short. It's accessibly written, um, whilst being very sort of rich with meaning and uh, and very erudite. But um, it, it reminded me a little bit of um, On Tyranny uh, by Tim Snyder, mm. um, who, who wrote a similarly accessible book on I think adjacent themes uh, and things that are very important. And he talks about the importance of truth. One of the things that he says, and I just want us to put this to you and, and ask for your reflections on it, is um, without truth, you don't have any sort of standard to hold power to account. Um, and then if you don't have any basic sort of idea of truth, I mean, of course, it's contested, but some, some sort of general sense of what it is, um, the person who wins is the one who creates the biggest spectacle. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And, and obviously, truth and things like epistemology, yeah. you know, it's, it's a contested uh, notion, but um, be interested to hear well, your thoughts. Philosophers are, contest everything, but their theories of truth most believe that there is a truth. Um, look, it's not an accident that uh, on disinformation is uh, similar to on tyranny. On tyranny is one of my favorite books. And in fact, I remember um, a very important line in on tyranny when he says post-truth is pre-fascism oh i wish i'd written that line it's perfect i mean that's exactly that could be the epitaph for my new book post-truth is pre-fascism that's why it's it's so urgent so i mean originally my book was called truth killers um which is now the name of the first chapter and my publisher said can we call it something else and I thought, you know, and authors are always very attached to their titles. And I thought, well, you know, okay, what have you got? But when they said on disinformation, I thought, okay, that's that fits, right? Because the book is almost exactly the same size as I think I fact identical size to Snyder. And I really admire his work. And I remember that being an important book when it came out. 
in my life because Trump had just come into office and it was a sort of a training manual for what you could do to resist. And Snyder's a very important, you know, academic scholar of the Holocaust and other things, teaches at Yale. And so, I mean, he blazed the trail. Uh, others have, have done uh, similar sorts of things, but I admired the fact that here was this, you know, very well-respected academic who was writing for the general public. And I thought, I want to do something like that. So I did. Fantastic. Thank you. And so um, if you can summarize it, I know it's not easy, but in a nutshell, uh, what's your book about? What's on disinformation? Yeah. About? Well, you can read the whole book in an hour. So if I had just start in, I could probably get through the whole thing. <laughs> through the whole thing look i can't i can't boil it down to a pithy slogan like uh snyder did but i can say this um the most important message of my book is that disinformation is intentional it's not misinformation misinformation is an accident but disinformation is a lie and if there's a lie, then there's a liar, and the liar wants something. And so you have to ask yourself, who's producing disinformation, and what's their purpose in doing so? And after all these years, as a scholar of science denial, I went on from studying the evolution deniers to studying the vaccine deniers, and the climate deniers, and the flat earthers, and all these other folks... There's a pattern to their thinking. There's a there's a, a real rhythm to it that they they all do the same thing. And then one day I started, and I've written about that. And and one day I started to wonder how did they get that way? Um, because I'd interviewed some of them, and then the answer came to me: it was disinformation. They didn't. Nobody wakes up one day and wonders whether there's a Jewish space laser causing the wildfires in California. That is fed to them as a lie by somebody who, for whatever reason, benefits from it. Who, who would ever think, you know, I bet those vaccines have tracking microchips in them. No, nobody thought of that just organically because they were worried about it. Someone invented that lie, and then it was amplified massively by Vladimir Putin. Uh, through his, uh, uh, you know, successor agency, the SVR, uh, successor to the KGB. And so, you know, to the point where you tell me what the denial is, and then I want to know, okay, who started it and for what purpose? So there's very little organic science denial. Flat Earth may be the only example I can think of. I don't know who's ever making a buck or getting anything out of Flat Earth. But climate change, anti-vax, I kind of know who's behind those and what they're getting out of it. The reason I wrote the book is because January 6th happened. And I saw this exact same pattern that the science deniers had been following for 70 years metastasize into the political sphere. It wasn't that science denial was becoming political, that had already happened. It was that the roadmap that the anti-vaxxers and the climate deniers had been following now was being used by politicians to deny reality, not just scientific truth, but reality itself, like whether the crime rate was going up, up or down, uh, whether an election was stolen, you know, all these things. And what happened is the politicians discovered, wow, look at this. This has been a very successful strategy to push back against science. I wonder if we could use it. And they did. And that's, to me, in a nutshell, I mean, again, Snyder said it first, post-truth is pre-fascism. Because when you can control the narrative and say there's no such thing as truth or truth is what I say it is, you can control the people. I mean, Hannah Arendt said that before him. Um, but it is that that's the book in a nutshell. Oh, and the final part, what we can do about it. Because I think this is a I wanted to write a training manual. A, um, I was executor for my for my dad's estate and went through his things, and I found a little training manual from World War II about what to do if you're captured by the enemy. And you know, tiny little paperback, you know, about this big. And I thought I want to write a training manual for what to like Snyder did for how to you know resist 
tyranny, I want to write a training manual on what the ordinary citizen can do to fight disinformation. Thank you. Um, I suppose another aspect to this that you touched on there is the geopolitics of information warfare and disinformation. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you're concerned with as well? That, that you know, yes. so we have the 2016 election yeah. interference, which is pretty well documented. And one of the things that struck me about that is it, it, it went all the way down to trying to engage in voter suppression of African-American voters by sending them texts which suggested that their creditors would find them if they voted, yeah. if they registered and, and so on. And, and you know, it's the, so it seemed to be a, a very, you know, um, complex and sophisticated operation. How many years on now uh, with an election looming this year? Um, that's got to be a worry about sort of election interference and whether or not yeah. actually some of those holes have been kind of plugged in terms of uh, the risks that are occurring. Um, do you reflect on yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the Russians definitely um, are responsible for a lot of the disinformation that comes to the United States. That you know, the, like I said, the who would have ever thought the vaccines and the microchips? But I mean, they've been undermining American science for more than twenty years. Well, I mean, back to even before Gorbachev, I think back to, you know, the Reagan era. Um, but, you know, the, the interesting part there is that whether it's domestic or foreign, disinformation is still dangerous. And sometimes what happens is what starts as a foreign program gets amplified through a domestic filter. And sometimes that's what they want, right? Because under the American Constitution, the military cannot fight against domestic disinformers. They can fight against foreign ones. So if they launder their message through, say, Fox News, you know, then that's allowed. Um, but the, you know, when you start to learn about foreign disinformation, you know, then you realize it's a weapon of war. It it was you know modern information warfare was invented in the 1920s by Vladimir Lenin, who appointed Felix Jerzynski as the first director of the Cheka. So that, I mean, that's about exactly 100 years ago. So they're very, very good at it. Now, here's the part that shocked me as I was, you know, looking for these parallels between science denial and reality denial. I noticed that a lot of the disinformation techniques that Trump was using are ones that Putin used. Trump is an idiot. But he's also a genius at propaganda. He, I, I doubt that he's ever read a manual on propaganda, how to do it. But he has this feral, instinctive sense of how to do it. And a lot of the techniques that he uses, the fire hose of falsehood, whataboutism, accusation in a mirror, those are propaganda 101. And, he, he, and he's a master at it. And anybody who's interested, you can learn all about the Russian techniques in this book, the Handbook of Russian Information Warfare, which is a NATO training manual. This is not a Russian manual. This is a NATO manual, kind of like the one that my dad had, right? How to fight back against the enemy. And this is free. You can get this in PDF online, or you can write to, uh, uh, I guess I got this from the uh, NATO Defense College in Rome, uh, and they'll send it to you for free. I mean, they'll, they'll pay the postage. And you learn incredible things about how disinformation works. And uh, the most important message of my book is that you can't win an information war unless you know that you're in one. And most people don't know that they're in one. Even most NATO soldiers didn't know that they were in one, which is why they wrote this book in 2016. And the message of this book in 2016 is we are already at war with Russia. We just don't know it yet. It's an information war, et, et cetera. This is one of the scariest books I've ever read. Thank you. That's that's really, really interesting. Um, going back to the theme of truth killers, um, who do you think the most dangerous truth killers are? And what do you think is kind of driving the phenomenon? It seems to be a mixture of different forces, sort of like a weather system. Um, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on to what extent you think it's balanced between, if you like, organic material and engineered stuff. This information is always engineered. I mean, that's just, that's what it is. Um, I mean, it depends on what they want. If they want money, it's a different sort. I mean, it follows the same blueprint, but if they want money, then it's a 
you know, different crowd maybe than if they want political power. But I mean, you can look back if you read uh, Naomi Reskis and Eric Conway's book, Merchants of Doubt, this is where the pathway starts. The tobacco companies wanted money. They wanted to continue selling cigarettes. So they more or less invented this public relations pushback to science. Later, the fossil fuel companies thought, wow, that looks pretty interesting. Let's use that to fight back against climate change. So, I mean, if somebody wants money, the truth killers are, you know, the the corporations that are willing to, you know, have people die from smoking or, you know, who cares about climate change, the, the, them. The ones that are really the focus of this book are the political ones. Um, Putin, Trump, uh, God forbid, Rudy Giuliani. What did he even say? Truth isn't truth. Um, Kellyanne Conway. I mean, folks like that. I mean, look, this is this is kind of an interesting story to me. I didn't tell this story in this book. It was in my earlier book, Post True. But what I noticed is that a lot of what today is accepted in Republican circles in the United States is, you know, would have been anathema to a Republican 40 or 50 years ago. And I don't just mean the content of policy. I mean the attitude toward truth. I think you now have right-wing postmodernists, folks who say, oh, there is no truth. There's only narrative. Um, all truth is from a political point of view. Everyone is biased. And, and this goes back to an idea that you brought up earlier, because what you know, one of Snyder's ideas, because if there's no truth, then there's no blame, then there's no accountability, which means a dictator can get away with anything that he wants. And, and that's, I hear that coming now from the right. And people sometimes ask me, uh, you know, critically, oh, but can't this come from the left? Of course. V.I. Lenin, you can't get more left than that. I mean, he invented it. So, you know, the 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 left versus right is not the answer to, you know, why this is happening. It's the um it's the it's the autocracy, it's the authoritarian streak, the idea that we have power over the truth because we want power over the people. So look at the states that are spreading the most disinformation today in the world. Russia, China, Iran, all repressive nations, all nations that censor their own media in their own country, but they can't censor the world because they don't have control over it. So what do they do? They engage in disinformation. Disinformation has the same goal as censorship. This is what drives me crazy about Elon Musk and you know other folks saying, you know, oh, but content moderation is just censorship. No, it's not. Disinformation is the new censorship. Disinformation is what you do when you have a free press. You don't censor the truth, as in bury it, you know, get rid of it, remove it from the stage. You put up a hundred fakes around it. You question everything. You lie. You 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 hide it in plain sight because it's surrounded with bullshit. That's what you do on the world stage. And that's what Xi and Putin uh, um, and uh, the leaders in Iran do when they're facing outward. Facing inward, they have their share of propaganda and disinformation. They go together. Uh, th this is and, and this is why I don't think Elon Musk is making a good faith argument, by the way, when he says that um, you know, he's a radical free speech proponent. Because... You know, what I one of the main ways that I think we can fight disinformation is to not amplify the disinformer's message. That's not censorship. Refusing to amplify somebody's lie is not censorship. It's just refusing to amplify, you know, what you know to be a lie. Um, they could do more of that and they don't. And 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 anyway, I don't I don't think that Musk actually believes that because he he censors a plenty when he wants to. Thank you. And one of the things we were going to some of the earlier parts is uh, strategic denialism. And I wonder how that connects with that. Although we've covered a fair bit of that sort of linked territory yeah. already. But if you can talk a little bit about that, particularly in the corporate world, denialism with things like climate change and, and yeah. broadly yeah. science. Um, and uh, it does seem that there's this spillover into politics, like you were saying. Yeah, strategic denial 
it's the the word the important there is strategic right because they're trying to figure out how can we create denial so there's something that's true that we don't want to be true what can we do about that and this goes back to the tobacco executives who hired the public relations person who said fight the science and he didn't mean fight it with evidence he meant fight it with you know a, a false narrative um look if they had facts they'd use them if they had counter countervailing evidence they'd use it they don't have that so what do they do they resort to propaganda public relations marketing you know what whatever they've got handy to try to smear the reputation of the scientists or to suggest that everyone's biased or they're getting something out of it and you know it, it hurts me because i think a lot of science and scientists and nobody trains them in graduate school how to fight back against something like that or the election officials or the public health officials who are just kind of gobsmacked by all these people who are all of a sudden trolling them and sending death threats and such that doesn't happen by mistake that is strategic that is coordinated somebody i mean there are the truth killers behind the truth killers there's steve bannon there's roger stone those those are the, the you know there's a um uh what's a stephen miller um there are the people who stand behind the mouthpieces of the, you know, the people in power to help them do what they do. That's the, I mean, so the, these are coordinated campaigns. And if people don't think so, you can read the history about what happened with the tobacco lobby or what happened with fossil fuels. They've now leaked all the memos. People know, yes, ExxonMobil knew in the 1970s about climate change. In fact, they're, scientists were some of the best in the world at predicting how it was going to go and in fact there are now it's now uh there are leaked memos showing that one thing that they did with all that research on climate change was to use it to make do strategic planning about being able to drill in areas that would be uh now available once the polar ice cap melted i mean talk about cynical right so i mean did they know yes what's the proof that they knew leaked memos and the fact that they acted on it to make plans to make more money I, i've got a cartoon up on my uh my office door uh, next door that i can almost remember it's this uh fellow uh, up at the microphone and he's got a, a you know a bunch of other people behind him he's giving some sort of a speech and he says uh and so the end of the world scenario while it be will be fraught with unimaginable horrors will be preceded by a period where we think that there will be unprecedented opportunities for profit. That's it. Unprecedented opportunities for profit right before everything falls apart. That's it. Greed for money, for power. Uh, that's what we face. And by the way, one message of disinformers is usually you can't do anything about this, but you can. And so my book is intended to hand the power back to people to say, look, disinformation is intended to get you to believe a falsehood. But even if they can't do that, the secondary goal of disinformation is to polarize you around a factual issue, to try to get you to choose a team and to distrust the people on the other team and to hate the people on the other team. And it, then that works whether you believe the falsehood or not, because sometimes it makes you think, ah, those deniers are not even worth talking to. And then we become further and further apart. And the third goal of disinformation is to make us cynical and helpless and feel like there's nothing we can do. I can't, I don't know who to trust anymore. I'm just going to stop watching the news. I don't, I, I could even stop caring. Um, that is the nightmare, actually, not the belief in falsehood. I, I can't quote it from memory, but it's on the bookshelf behind me. Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism said that if people lie to you constantly, the consequence is not that you believe the lie, it's that you believe nothing. And if you believe nothing, then you give up. And a population that doesn't believe anything, you can do anything to those people that you want to do. And again, Snyder, post-truth is pre-fascism. So it seems, you know, that it's fundamentally about power on some level. I mean, yes. money and power, money and power. Yes, that's right. um, And 
civic disengagement and and a sort of sense that there's nothing you can do helps to further uh, that that very power. Um, so that, that brings us that brings us rather beautifully actually to to some things that you're talking about about what we can do or, or, or what society can do. Um, something that stood out to me is that you. Um, you highlight that very few people are actually the key nodes in the spread of disinformation. So, um, for example, you mentioned a data point from the Center for Countering data, uh, Digital Hate, which found that 65% uh, of anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to a dozen people, roughly. Right. Um, so that's very interesting. So I mean, it suggests that they're, 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 they're actually the task of being able to sort of disrupt the networks that are spreading disinformation is perhaps not so um, onerous as it might seem, that it, it's actually due to very small super spreaders, if yes. you like. That, that's right. And, and I think that suggests a solution. You can't debunk your way out of an infodemic. You can't wait for people to go down that rabbit hole and crawl down there and get them and pull them back. I mean, that's noble work and, and we do have to do it. And I wrote a whole book on that called How to Talk to a Science Denier. But the key is to keep them from becoming deniers in the first place, because I mean, look, they're victims. You know, we should have some empathy to keep them from from falling for this. They're being duped. I've sometimes said to de deniers, you're correct that you're being duped. You're just misinformed about who's doing it. And they, and then, you know, to a conspiracy theorist, they go, what? What? You know, they kind because they kind of want to hear what the next sentence is. So who is that that's duping me? Because they're, they're not just going to leave that sitting on the table. Um so I think that the pipeline goes from the creators to the amplifiers to the believers. And the pinch point is the amplifiers, uh, which means the media and, so, you know, uh, especially the media that lie to us, but also mainstream media sometimes just they can amplify a message just by reporting on it because they're not doing it in the right way. But especially social media, where now... Twitter, Facebook, I mean, they have cut back on content moderation. So they have fired their whole teams in some cases, the trust and security team. I, I think it um, was it, I forget, was that it? I think that was at Twitter. Uh, Musk got rid of them. But I mean, even Facebook has done that too, because once one of them does it, then, you know, it's like an airline cuts the price. Well, they all cut the price, race to the bottom. Um, there, there's just, and and I mean, if you read their rationale for it, they'll say, well, but we've gotten so good now at the automated way of detecting inauthentic accounts that we don't need a human team doing it anymore. Oh, no, no, they're wrong about that. Because for, they're wrong on many levels. For one thing, inauthentic accounts that's not the way to 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 fight it, right? I mean, that, that's part of the way to fight it, but that's not the only way to fight it. And the challenge I give is this. Well, if that's the best way to fight something you don't want on your platform, why don't you fight? Why don't you fire your entire human team who scrubs for pornography? Oh, we can't do that. That's too important. Yeah, you're right. That is too important. And so is disinformation. Human eyes on the problem are the way to fight it. You can't just leave it. I don't care how good AI gets. You can't just leave it to machine tools to uh, to fight this. When they do, you get things like the uh, uh, Rohingya massacre. I mean, they they just they they don't they they, they need people with they, they need human intelligence to to scrub for this. And then. Another bad thing, too, that happens, and I mean, my heart goes out to them in, in some ways, that the line workers at Twitter and Facebook and such, maybe they want to do the right thing, but they feel like they're going to get criticized no matter what, because then when they do content moderation, people say, oh, you're just censors. You're just, you know, you're, you're working for Biden. And then what's the intent of that? Well, then they cut back. So, I mean, it's 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 really it's not humorous it's tragic to see that those disinformation messages work even on the people who are supposed to be scrubbing for disinformation sometimes they're not people of good faith and you know they don't care but sometimes they are people of good faith who just get intimidated by the idea that you know well may, maybe maybe i am uh, how do I know if I'm biased? You know, maybe, I, well, because somebody who's biased doesn't really ask themselves that question, maybe. 
but it's uh, you know it's it's hard. I mean, I I know some people on the content moderation teams uh, who used to work for Twitter, and some of them are really very good people who are trying to do their job. And it's just it's it's a hard job, but I think that's where the trouble is coming. And and I'll say this: this predated Musk. Those that Center for Countering Digital Hate. That study was done before Musk took over. The night he took over, I checked Twitter and eight of those 12 disinformation dozen were still there. So he didn't have anything to do with that. You can't say, you know, oh, well, they were still there because he let him stay on the platform. No, the night before he took over, eight of those 12 were still there. Why? If they know who they are. Why don't they deplatform them? Again, refusing to amplify a liar's message is not censorship. Fantastic, thank you. Um, what are some of the other ways? Because you, I mean, we, we will get into some of the things that you touch on specifically. There's ten points that you make in the book. Yeah, but um, just you know, sort of broadly, what are some of the other ways that one can fight for the truth uh, and uh, can? perhaps lobby yeah. the government to, to do so. So I interviewed some folks that I knew who were information warriors um, for the government, people who do the nasty pushback against the, you know, the war warfare, information warfare, you know, against Russia, against China, people in the army, people in counterintelligence, people who you know, work in, uh, you know, intelligence services. And I asked them, what could we do that we're not doing? I mean, you uh, say, you know how to fight disinformation. You do it every day against, you know, that we're in a constant disinformation war against China and Russia and Iran. You have techniques that you use. What, what do we need to know? Because the reality is that all of us are the foot soldiers and we just don't know it. We're the targets, we're the foot soldiers in this war. So what should we know? And the answer was universal, that we need to fight back with truth. I mean, do you ever wonder why Trump repeats his lies so often? It's because repetition works. So why do we think that it's sufficient to just say the truth once and then walk away if, if they don't seem to be accepting it? The truth bears repeating. And by the way, you have to have the right messenger for the truth right? You, you can't just um, put on a public service announcement or, you know, it shouldn't necessarily come from a politician. You have to find people who are of the community that you're trying to convince. What One of my uh, heroes in this is a, a very young person. I don't even think she's 22 or 23 years old, Lena Yassin. Um, she's a, a Sudanese um, climate activist, and, you know, she's a, a young woman who grew up in Sudan. She's Muslim. And she went out to uh, to villages to try to figure out how to show that climate, doing something about climate change was not against the principles in the Quran. And she figured out on her own that the person to talk to was the main influencer, which was the religious leader. And so, you know, being an observant Muslim herself, she had some credibility. And then, you know, to go to the spiritual leader right away helped to amplify her message. Well, she's she's a one-woman team for fighting. I mean, she's the Greta Thunberg that nobody has heard of. And after that, I mean, I was a fan the first time I heard, heard her speak. After that, she spoke at the Vatican. She spoke at, you know, different places. She's now, I think, getting her bachelor's degree at, at Oxford. I think it's not even a master's, it's a bachelor's degree. I mean, she's a very young person. You will hear of her, Lena Yassin. Um, but we need more people like that. Like that. So, so you don't have to be a member of the military or, you know, reading, you know, secret uh, intelligence briefings to know how to do this. She started to be a climate activist at the age of 14. Um, you know, in, in Sudan with no resources. And, and I don't know if she had a mentor, but I mean, boy, she's maybe somebody if she, she's probably, I'm sure she's got many books in her. I don't know if she's written a book yet. And this is called the New Book Network, but you should jump at the chance to interview her if you get a, a chance. I'll tell you where you can find out more about her. There was a, there was a PBS documentary called Infodemic. 
And uh, I, I, full disclosure, I, I was part of that. I, I was uh, one of the speakers in it, but so was she. And if you want to just skip to the part where you hear uh, Lena talk, uh, wonderful. That, that's a wonderful suggestion. And and, and that that is very interesting. So um, uh, I do hope that she publishes a book soon, um, but in perhaps one of my-, my Got to graduate I, first. Exactly. And, <laughs> and I, 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 I wear many hats, so perhaps I, I, I could reach out to her um, uh, having swapped a hat uh, in in a different uh, in a different situation, um, but um, there is a particular issue um, that we haven't fully touched on yet, which is yeah, um, how you deal with the more complex problem of people who really do believe in these falsehoods, um, yes. and it does seem that there is a large, if you like, constituency for certain pre-existing yes. conspiracist beliefs. Yes. Um, you know, obviously the 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 insurrection. You know, the idea that the insurrection. Was, was performed by Antifa or that the election was stolen, which are all yep. interconnected. And there are a lot of people who vote for that, uh, for, for, sorry, who are attracted to that message and are going to vote in a certain way. Um, and, but there are other people who believe in things that are sort of, you know, that, um, I mean, at the moment, anti-Semitism is a, is a, yeah. a, it, it has been surging on many platforms and there are many people who believe in the, the sort of protocols of Zion style sort of narrative and that sort of thing. So how do you, how do you reach people and change their mind? People who kind of of themselves are, are, are simply being receptive to certain messages and then are spreading it because they believe yes. it, not because they, they have a bad intention for yeah. day. It's a really hard question. It's a good question. Because the thing that I want people to recognize is that you can talk to people who disagree with you, um, but it is difficult to do. And I think the thing that stops people from doing it is the idea that I that they can't make a difference, or or just the that it's uncomfortable to do that. Um, and I wrote a book about this called "How to Talk to a Science Denier." In the first chapter is where I went to a flat earth convention, 650 flat earthers, and just dove in, spent the first day with my mouth closed, hearing what they had to say, listening, which is what they wanted. But then the second day said, look, I'm a philosopher from Boston. Um, I think you're wrong. And can we talk about it? And, you know, they had a million quote unquote facts that they wanted to share with me. I said, no, no, no. I don't want to talk about the content of your beliefs because I'm not a scientist, but neither are you. Let's talk about the reasoning pattern that got you there. And here's what I learned. If you're calm and patient and respectful, you can talk to most anyone. Because remember that the message that they've received, if they've been dis disinformed, is to hate you. I mean, pe people wonder about this in the United States. You know, why do... Why is there so much hatred uh, from MAGA, you know, Make America Great Again movement against liberals? It's because if you watch Fox News, you see every day that the message that they receive is that liberals hate them. And we don't. I mean, not in the way that they're they're talking about. I mean, so there has to be empathy. There has to be a feeling that, you know, somebody doesn't go down the rabbit hole usually by themselves they're chasing something. They didn't just fall in. They, they chased that rabbit down there because they were disinformed. And that's a person who's a victim. That's a person who's been duped. Just like somebody who's sick with a disease. You want to heal the sick. You want to keep people from getting sick, but you want to heal the sick as well. Now, the, the, the hard part of this is once somebody has fallen for a conspiracy theory, it's very hard to get them out of it. But other things that I've read convinced me that it is possible. Um, some of the most inspiring reading uh, that I did in preparation for writing that book, the, the earlier book, the How to Talk to a Science Denier, is that if you, and there's no scientific evidence to back this up. This is anecdotal. This is based on my own reading, okay? Because I'm not a scientist. This is my own reading. If you read the stories of hardcore deniers who radically change their mind, it always happens in the same way. Someone that they trust or came to trust took the time to show them patience and calm and respect, left them the distance to ask them the question, and then they changed their mind on their own. And if you think that can't happen, there are stories galore in my book about 
this very thing. And in fact, the, the, the shocking thing was that's the only way that it happens. That's not just the best way. That's the only way. If you try to shove facts down people's throat or you insult them or you show your contempt or hatred, you're never going to get them. But if you become that person in their life that despite your differences, you're still friends, you still maybe even like one another, or you go all the way out to their convention to talk to them and see what they think, you begin to build some trust. Trust is not sufficient, but it's a necessary step. Because remember, disinformation erodes trust. How do you build trust? Face-to-face -face conversation. That's how you build trust. So think about cults. What do they do? They try to isolate you. They try to keep you from talking to anybody who doesn't already isn't in the cult. It's the same kind of thing. And, and I did my reading, not just about science denial. I did my reading about racism, about, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, uh, total belief systems. Some of the most interesting reading that I did uh, was about um, it, one of the most shocking books was called Rising Out of Hatred, which was about a guy who was raised within the white supremacist movement, went to college and was befriended by a group of Jewish students and then renounced his white supremacy based on the friendship that he had with the students. So, and I mean, they knew who he was when they invited him to Shabbat dinner. Um, another inspiring story was uh, uh, an African-American uh, blues musician uh, named Daryl Davis, who single-handedly talked 200 people out of the Ku Klux Klan. He did it one by one, individually based on friendship if he can do that right if 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 though if that's possible why isn't it possible to talk to people who are anti-vax or who are maga or who are you know deny climate change maybe it's because we're not out there talking to them maybe it's because people are intimidated to do it I, i've i know some folks who are much braver than me um dave and aaron Neinhauser up in uh, rural Pennsylvania, up in coal country, Pennsylvania, their ex-union uh, um, officials and liberals who go out and they go to Trump rallies and they film their interactions, having respectful conversations with Trump supporters, saying things like, you should stop watching Fox News. And initially the people just scream at them, but if you don't scream back, it's pretty hard to you know, keep up that level of energy. And they not only film the encounters, then they teach a class on how to have these encounters. So, I mean, that is really important work. And, and that the, the book that I've been talking about, my book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, is one of my favorite books that I wrote because I learned so much about you know, something that I didn't know about before. Um, but I no longer think that that is the solution. That is that it's the only solution. I think it's part of the solution. But in the same way that during a pandemic, you don't just heal the sick, you try to keep people from getting sick. And so how to talk to a science denier was how to heal the sick. On disinformation is how to keep them from getting sick. Thank you. And another thing that you discuss in the book is the importance of confronting lies. You talk about the importance of doing that. What does that matter specifically in being able to tackle disinformation? Liars. Well, if you uh, look, you should confront the, the believer because you might change their mind. But if you confront a liar, you're not going to change their mind because they already know that it's not true. So, so why, why should you confront a liar? And it's because a liar has an audience. I mean, a liar, if, if you can do it in a way that, um, you know, other people can hear you, uh, it's important. And, and I, I mean, I just think it's important not to let a lie go unaddressed. Simply to say, that's a lie and you know it. Ask yourself, when's the last time on CNN you saw that? You don't see that. You see them say... Um, well, there's no evidence to support that. Well, that's kind of the, you know, Marquis de Queensberry rules of no. I think there's a certain point at which when the person says the thing over and over and, you know, look, maybe the folks at CNN have a standing order not to use the word lie or they'll lose their job. But I, I think it's warranted when somebody says the same thing over and over and you know it's a lie to say, I'm sorry, that is not true. 
And if you, you know, you continue to say it, I have no other conclusion to draw than that you're lying, but they don't do that. Instead, for the sake of ratings, they put a microphone in front of their face and let them talk. Uh, I have now in my book, I'm very hard on the mainstream media. I'm also, I'm much harder on Fox, but they know, we know, we all know who they are, right? They lie. They know they're lying. They're proven liars. Okay. But mainstream media also doesn't confront liars in the right way. I think that we need more foreign correspondent type interviewers. You know, the people who have interviewed Saddam Hussein, the people who have interviewed Gaddafi and know what it's like to confront a dictator and not let them get away with their propaganda. I mean, we need Christian Amanpour out there, you know, times 10 interviewing these folks, not these softball interviews. And, and I mean, you see, why do you see that? It's because journalists... Uh, you know, even on a network like MSNBC, that's, you know, quite liberal, they're really worried about being accused of political bias. And so they'll kind of do a both sides thing, or they, you know, they'll, they'll criticize Biden just to show that it's even. They they don't understand the tactics of disinformation. They don't understand that they're getting played. Um, you know, I, I've I've tried to get my message out as much as I can to mainstream media. The problem is that the shows that I get on are ones that already get it, right? Uh, they, I mean, that's why they, they have me on, because they maybe they already understand the difference between mis- and disinformation. Um, but th- that, you know, if there's if there's one short message that I could shout from the rooftops to, to all the journalists, it's that misinformation is a mistake, but disinformation is a lie. And when you report on disinformation as misinformation, you're letting them get away with it. You're making it sound. So suppose you went out as a reporter because there had been a murder. And instead of reporting it as a murder, you said, man found bleeding, cause unknown. I mean, you know, that you're not telling, I mean, are you telling the truth? Well, yeah, he was found bleeding, cause unknown, no, not quite. They, they, they need to step it up. Thank you. And another interesting thing that you mentioned is the importance of heeding history, which yeah. takes us back a little bit, in a sense, to Snyder, um, perhaps yes. in a way. Um, could you explain what you mean by that? This didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, the first conspiracy theory was, uh, I can't remember, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was in Rome, wasn't it? Wasn't it Nero? I think it was Nero uh, that, that, he, that he had burned Rome. Uh, and you know, because he was out of town when Rome burned, and the first conspiracy theory was that Nero, it must have been him because he was out of town. The second conspiracy theory was from Nero himself. Oh, it must have been the Christians who who did this, and so he, you know, burned the Christians. I mean, this goes back a long way. Um, what's new now is the technology to have that lie amplified in real time to the entire world audience. So, I mean, sometimes people will say, well, what is all this talk about post-truth? This is not new. Uh, it It is new in the sense that the, the lie can now be spread to the entire population. I mean, the internet, you know, you look back at the tobacco executives, what did they do after they left that meeting in December 1953? And, you know, okay, how do we fight this? They took out full page ads in American newspapers. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to spend barely any money to get the message, the disinformation message out. It's, it's, um, so, I mean, you heed history because you want to understand how did Hitler use propaganda? How did, you know, Nero use propaganda? How did, you know, uh, this throughout history, how how did control of information result in repression of people? That's very, that's, and I mean, Snyder, that's what he does. And there are other folks who do it too. Um, but imagine that in an era in which you've got the disinformation tool, you've got, you've got the machinery of a disinformer's dream, the ability to get that, lie out around the world. And now with AI, it, it makes it so much easier because now you don't need a troll farm. You need a troll garden. You don't need a thousand people creating fake stories. You need one computer doing it and somebody who's a native speaker of English 
who works for the SVR who can say, oh, that one looks pretty good. We'll use that. I mean, it's this problem is getting worse and worse. And you want to hear the, the extremely sad part. And I haven't talked about this in public anywhere. So maybe you're going to break some news here. There is now a backlash against fighting disinformation. Uh, there are folks in government, in academics. I don't know if it's all coordinated. I don't know if it's all bad faith, good faith. I know that Jim Jordan in Congress, it's bad faith. They're trying to intimidate the academics who are studying mis- and disinformation. They're calling them before Congress, making them testify, accusing them of collaboration with Biden, persecuting people. The, the person who was the head of Biden's uh, disinformation governance board uh, was hounded out of her position in two weeks. Uh, I mean, it's it's just, it's sad to see this. And that story has not been told, by the way. That story that I just told you has not made major media beyond just the little tidbits. People know about Jim Jordan. They know about what happened to the Disinformation Governance Board. What they don't realize, and this is going to sound like a conspiracy theory, but I've actually got some evidence for this, that this is part of a strategic denialist campaign. There's money and power and influence behind this. Jim Jordan is not smart enough to think of something like this on his own. He's doing someone else's bidding. I wonder whose. That is genuinely fascinating. Um, that That is very, very interesting. And um, talking about sort of the movement of tactics, let's say from Russia to the American political mainstream, um, I noticed that, um, gosh, what was his name? Steve Bannon described himself as a Leninist, which is rather yes. telling <laughs> uh, uh, at one yes. point. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, that's, that seems to be um, indicative of, of, of certain kinds of political phenomena that are happening that um, are very T interesting. Terrorism, <laughs> really? You think of information terrorism? I mean, in yes, addition bloodthirsty terrorism that Lenin himself did. But I mean, it's, it's, look, we haven't seen the last page yet. Uh, look, you, you're all the way in, in Christchurch, which is about the farthest on the globe that, that you can go. So you, and I was just in Christchurch, and it's, it's a lovely place. When one's here in the United States, you feel viscerally the threat of a second Trump term. Will he throw people in jail that he thinks journalists, academics, others who he thinks are against him? Yes, he will. He's already announced what his second term agenda will be. And people can say that's alarmist, I suppose, except he said it. And Trump prides himself on following through on what he says, no matter how horrible it is. And so, I mean, he has not made a secret of what he has planned. I think what he has planned is fascism, just as Snyder predicted, just as Jason Stanley predicted in how propaganda works and how fascism works. Listen to these people. This is what Trump has planned. We don't know where it ends. Does it, does it involve jailing your political opponents? I think so. Detention camps? He's already talked about that. What's next? This is why we need to heed history. We know where this ends. Thank you. And I, I, I won't go through all of the 10 points that you make because people really should read the book. But those are two that stood out to me that I thought were very important. Um, I was, in fact, going to ask you um, about what you think the implications of a second Trump term are. And we've, we've, we've dealt with that. So That's it. Uh, um, <laughs> I'll tell you one just, implication. Maybe I'll end up in Christchurch. No, um, <laughs> I, I would stay and fight. Uh, that's what that's what I would do. I would read on tyranny again and and resist. I mean, it's it's a parlor game here. Oh, oh, do you have a second passport? Where would you go? Would you go to Canada? Would you go to England? And and I'm completely serious. Uh, of I've I've heard joking, not joking at cocktail parties of liberal friends who talk about this. Um, I would stay and fight. Well, I, I salute that. Um, one final question, or perhaps a penultimate one, um, would be, what do you think that journalism isn't doing right now? Um, you know, I, I myself am a journalist by background. Yeah. What do you think journalism isn't doing right now that it could be doing 
to yeah. confront these problems and, and and not just disinformation sort of writ large, but yeah. politicized disinformation that's going to have really concrete effects on people's lives. Yeah. Um, that's going to really affect the United States and, you know, by extension, the world. The, the, the message, unfortunately, the message right now, the, the, the pushback message against the mis and disinformation fighters is you don't want to have some uh, elite deciding what's misinformation and what's not. They're just going to you know be biased. And I think that, that that kind of push, what the media could do is report out that story, get to the bottom of that. Why are they pushing back? Who's who's behind it? As I said, but day to day basis, I think I think it's a, it's a, a an easier question. Um, stop booking liars on your program. Soledad O'Brien said that uh, she's not on CNN anymore. But you know, I think that's one thing that they could do. Um, I think that they should not fall as much as they do for false equivalence. And, you know, I mean, how do you tell both sides of a lie? How, why, why would you have somebody on your program just to show balance if the other person is lying? Um, they need to report on this more as the, the crisis that it, uh, that it is. And I mean, one of them, look, one piece of, uh, one really fascinating piece of journalism that I've never seen. I mean, they could do a whole one hour CNN documentary on this. So, you know, run it on Sunday night forever and people would lap it up left and right would be, what are the tactics of propaganda? I have not seen that, but it's really fascinating. I mean, when you, when you look at Putin and Trump side by side using the same tactic, there's a piece of you that gets a chill and wonders, I wonder what that's called. What is that technique? Where did they learn that? Did Trump learn it from Putin? I mean, you know, somebody needs to, I think the media could report on that and make it fascinating. There's something the, that you hear all the time, all the time, all the time, which is when Trump will say, um, you know, he'll make an accusation that's something that he himself is guilty of, you know, and, and you've heard that said as every accusation is a confession um that's not quite it right because that makes it sound like it's a weakness right like like that's a like that's a mistake that he's making that he's he's so weak-minded that he's accusing the other person of corruption when he's corrupt or you know he's accusing um biden of you know his son being uh uh, uh you know uh, making money in, in some nefarious way, because that's what his son's, you know, something like this. It's called accusation in a mirror. And it's a disinformation technique that goes all the way back to Lenin. And, and the reason accusation in a mirror is so effective is because if you can get your accusation out there before the other person accuses you, then you've you've beaten them to the punch. And then the person hearing it, the audience hearing it will say, oh, but wait a minute now, aren't you just accusing him of what he accused you of? See, so they're they're stealing the thunder, right? You can get out there ahead of the truth tellers. The reason I find that professionally fascinating is because there's something called pre-bunking that works very well against disinformers. If you, Sander Vanderlinen at University of Cambridge, uh, Stephen Lewandowski at Bristol, uh, John Cook at uh, University of Monash in, uh, in uh, Australia, uh, these are all people who are cutting edge cognitive scientists working on this problem of inoculation theory, pre-bunking, showing that one of the best ways to fight myths and disinformation is to get the truth out there first. Don't wait until the lie comes and then chase after it. Get the truth out first. And one way to get the truth out first is to say, these are the techniques they're going to use. The, the analogy I use is this. Imagine you'd never been to, I don't know what used car dealers are like in New Zealand. They're, they're pretty bad reputation in the United States. You go to a used car dealer and they're going to pull all sorts of tricks on you to try to sell you that car. And if you just wander into a used car dealer to buy a car and you don't know those tricks, you might fall for one of them. One of the oldest ones is, well, uh, let, let me have your car keys and we'll take your car out for a test drive and see what it's worth at trade in. So that then when you decide to walk away, they go, oh, we can't find your car. And so you stay. And if you stay long enough, you'll buy the new car. And you think you're not, nobody's stupid enough to fall for that. It works all the time. What would help? 
if you were inoculated against that, if, you know, your dad told you before you went in, now don't give him your car keys, because if you give him your car keys, they're good, this person's going to pull on you. And then maybe you think, oh, you know, my old man, what does he know? And you give him the car keys, and then they pull it, and you go, dad was right. See? So pre-bunking, inoculation works. And by the way, the disinformers know that, which is why they say every accusation is a confession because Trump will often accuse somebody of something and you think, where did that come from? And you think, ah, that's something he's got planned or that's something he's already done that he's going to be accused of later. Ask yourself why before the 2016 election, he wouldn't say he was already talking about it being fraudulent. That's because he was pre-planning what he was going to say if he lost. Then when he won, you know, well, then, okay, then he didn't speak of it until 2020, and then he dusted it off. So I would love, love, love to see a, a very splashy, you know, uh, uh, special Christian Amanpour could host on the 10 tactics of disinformation. And I think that would do a world of good. That, that's what journalists could be doing, telling that story. And I mean, who wouldn't watch that? Um, finally, um, I hope you don't mind me asking, but what are you working on next? Do you have any plans um, to do something uh, interesting as a next step? Um, what do you have in mind? You ask me the, maybe the hardest question at the very end, because ordinarily throughout my life for the last 20 years, every time I'm doing publicity for one book, I've got another one that I'm working on and another one in the pipeline that I'm going to work on next. I mean, it's all kind of stacked up and I'm, you know, it, it's all ready. That That's how it happens. For the first time in, in my adult life, my life as a writer, I don't have a next book planned because the stakes right now are so high for the 2024 election that I'm spending as much time as I've got on publicity. I'm just doing as much as much as I can. I'm writing some things that are ancillary to the book, uh, you know, in popular media, trying to get, you know, the word out. But I'm, my attention has not wandered my my I have not moved forward beyond this. Um, and maybe that's a good thing. Um, it, it's it's disorienting in a way, because I usually have a project. I'm reading other other people's work. I'm I, I don't want to say I'm lying fallow because I'm not because I'm working all the time. But it is it will be nice to be able to get back to some creative work that I really enjoy in writing. I don't know when that's going to hit me. Maybe just after the November election. We'll we'll see. We'll we'll see. <laughs> we will see. Thank you so much for your time, Lee, and you've been listening to the New Books Network. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, let's see what we can do to fight disinformation going forward.